This is one of the most mysterious and scary murder cases in Santa Clara County, California, USA. This 15-year-old high school student went missing in 2012, and her body has yet to be found even though the killer has been found. Welcome back to our channel. Today we will come to a very mysterious and strange case. Case of the disappearance of Sierra Lamar, a beautiful, positive, and always fun schoolgirl. This case has shocked and hurt the Sierra Lamar community and family. Police searched for more than two years and thousands of people joined the search, but there was no trace of Sierra. Things got even scarier when Antolin Garcia Torres, an ordinary man, was accused of murder and sentenced to death, but Sierra's body has yet to be found. The Sierra Lamar case has shocked the community and the entire United States, especially those living in the vicinity. It highlighted disappearances and violent crimes in the U.S. and spurred public interest in similar cases. So let's take a deep breath. Let's step through the door of darkness together to uncover the crime veil of the Sierra Lamar case. A city by the name of Fremont can be found in the general vicinity of San Francisco Bay. The Fremont region experienced explosive growth during the California Gold Rush, which began in the 1840s and lasted for decades. And of course, a great deal of progress has been made since that time in a variety of areas. Over 230,000 people today call Fremont which was once little more than a post office with acreage for grapes, nursery plants, and olives, their home. Today, Fremont has become one of the most populous cities in the United States. It's possible that you've heard of the city because of its Bay Area fast transport system, which transports locals all across the region and even into San Francisco, which is located nearby. But other than that, Fremont is keeping a rather low profile with regard to its image. In point of fact, there is not a lot that can be said at all. Even though there is evidence that mammoths lived in this area more than 2 million years ago, Fremont is currently the location of a Tesla factory that employs more than 15,000 people. In addition to that, it is the home of various historic structures in the United States. Examples of such places are the Nile Silent Film Museum, the Shin Arboretum, and the Mission San Jose Cemetery. This city is renowned as San Francisco's calm younger brother, therefore finding additional intriguing information about the area may be difficult given its reputation as a sleepy metropolis. But all of that would alter in March of 2012 for a variety of unfavorable reasons putting the spotlight on our narrative. Today, we are going to talk to a family named the Lamars that now resides in Fremont, California. Steve, a computer engineer who was also the family's father, his wife Marlene, and their two children made up the other members of the family. Sierra, the youngest of the three daughters, was born on October 19, 1996. Her older sister, Danielle, was almost four years her senior at the time of Sierra's birth. Both of the young ladies enjoyed a pretty easy and carefree childhood. They, like many families, went through both good times and difficult times. However, 
Behind closed doors, there was one extremely troubling information that was discovered. During the time that Danielle and Sierra were younger, their father had engaged in inappropriate behavior with one of their classmates while they were having a sleepover. When he was finally found, Steve pled no contest to the charge of engaging in indecent conduct with a child. It goes without saying that he was sentenced to a year in jail as a direct consequence of his actions, and it is easy to see how the news tore the family apart. Despite the fact that Steve had been convicted of crimes in the past, Danielle and Sierra maintained that they had a very positive connection with him and that he had always been a kind and respected parent. However, things were clearly over between Steve and Marlene and the couple filed for divorce not long after learning of this development. Shortly after this event, she started seeing someone else. Both Sierra and Danielle went to their neighborhood's high school, which was called Washington High School. There, they were able to socialize with a large number of people and do rather well academically. It was said that Sierra was a girl who enjoyed life to the fullest. She had a lot of friends because of her positive attitude, her boundless energy, and her generous heart. Cheerleading and dance competitions were two of her favorite activities when she was in school. After some time, Marlene came to the conclusion that she wanted to relocate from Fremont to Morgan Hill, which is situated around 60 kilometers, 40 miles, to the southwest of the city. The three of them, together with Sierra, moved to Morgan Hill in October of 2011, accompanied by her boyfriend Rick Gardner. Rick was employed in the construction sector, and despite the fact that work was beginning to pick up, money was still very tight for the family. They moved into a ranch-style house that was rented for them on Piquito Espanu Court, a rural cul-de-sac that was flanked on all sides by agricultural fields. Now, it should come as no surprise that Sierra was extremely dismayed to learn that she would be relocating to a place where she knew neither her close friends nor her interests. The greeting she received at Sobrat O High School was not quite as warm as the one she had at Washington High, despite the fact that she was extremely well-liked at Washington High. Despite this, Sierra was able to establish herself as a valued member of the Sobrat O High School community over time. She did wind up making friends, gaining popularity among the other kids, and eventually rejoining the cheering group she had previously participated in. Five months later, in March of 2012, we find ourselves in a different situation. Sierra had done a good job of adjusting to the local environment. On the 11th of March, she informed her father and sister, who were still in Fremont at the time, about her development by calling them. The mood of the discourse was mostly upbeat. She shared with her sister that she wanted to get her hair colored the next time she traveled to Fremont, that she was looking forward to one of the future school tasks, and that she had completed all of the assignments that were assigned to her. It would appear that she was making extremely good progress in her academics. Sierra cut off the conversation with Danielle and Steve shortly after supper since the evening was drying to a close and she was getting tired. Due to the fact that it was a Thursday, she had school the day after that. The three of them parted ways peacefully for the evening, 
each of them expressing hope that they would speak again soon. On the other hand, nobody had the slightest idea that this would be the final time that Danielle and Steve exchanged words with Sierra. March 16, 2012 When they got back to Morgan Hill, it was a normal day at the office. The household of Gardner Lamar got up and went about their normal morning activities. Around 6 o'clock, Rick got up to walk out to his job, and shortly after this, Marlene arrived to give Sierra a kiss on the forehead before heading out to her own employment. Both Rick and Marlene left around the same time. It was up to Sierra at this point to get herself ready for school and to secure the home before leaving. After sending a body a tweet at 6.29 in the morning, she got dressed, put her shoes on, and went to the front door to wait for the bus. You need to understand that the Piquito Espanu Court was located in a very remote location in comparison to Soberto High School and the rest of Morgan Hill. Every morning at 7.11, Sierra, like many other youngsters across the United States, was required to travel down a remote road that was surrounded by farmland along Palm and Doherty Avenues in order to catch the bus. While she was driving there, she sent a text message to her pals, asking if there was any chance they might get together before school started. But it was only three minutes after that when her school bus pulled up at 7.15 in the morning. Sierra was completely absent from the scene. Sierra did not appear for a bus, and what's even worse is that she did not meet up with her companion before class or attend school at all. Even though Sierra's friends found it strange that she hadn't turned up for school, they didn't feel it was necessary to inform the teachers since they didn't think it was wise enough. The day continued on without her presence, as it always did. Marlene did what she always did at the end of the school day and contacted Sierra to check in on how Sierra's day had gone. She found it a little strange that Sierra's phone went directly to voicemail every time, but she didn't let it bother her. On the other hand, when she got back home, she saw that her daughter's room was still vacant, and she immediately suspected that something was amiss. She gave Steve the call to find out whether Sierra had returned to Fremont to spend time with him, which would have been a minor annoyance on her part, but not a major catastrophe. Not only was this not the case, but it wasn't the case either. Dialing Danielle as well as a few of Sierra's other close pals, they all responded with the same message. So Marlene called Sobretto High School and learned that she had skipped all of her courses. This caused her to begin to feel panic. I had a conversation with her, during which I bade her farewell and gave her a hug, and everything turned out okay. And I told her I loved her. When Marlene Lamar received an email from Sobrato High School later that day, it informed her that her daughter Sierra, who is 15 years old, had skipped school on Friday. Until then, Marlene had no idea. This is concerning because Sierra arrives at the school bus stop much before daybreak on a daily basis. However, the bus driver did not see her, and neither did her pals during the entire day. It seems incomprehensible to me that she would go through with this without first contacting her close circle of friends to reassure them that she is fine. She would never wish for all of this suffering to befall the both of us. Making a call to the authorities. 
right away, police were sent to the Piquito Espanu court to investigate the situation. But because there was such a wide window of opportunity for Sierra's disappearance, the detectives did not know where to begin their search. They started with the individuals who were closest to Sierra. Naturally, this included a number of her acquaintances, all of whom were very forthright with her regarding the predicament that Sierra and her family were currently in. Now, Sierra was a typically cheerful person, but it had only been a few months since her mother, who had just divorced, had forced her to move away from home. This meant that she had to leave her prior life, as well as her wife and all of her old friends. The authorities considered the fact that she frequently laughed and even seriously discussed the possibility of fleeing to Fremont as a hint that she had likely fled on her own will and were able to do so willingly. In spite of the fact that the police were trying to downplay how serious Sierra's disappearance was, other components of the case were moving in the complete other way. Not only did she not speak a word, but she also deleted any previous activity from her social media accounts. Her phone was off the hook, all calls went to voicemail, and she was nowhere to be seen when we went to check on her at the front door. It's easy to see why Sierra's relatives and friends would be terrified in this situation. As a result, the extensive search for Sierra Lamar was finally able to get underway, despite the slow efforts of the police. Now, the breadcrumb trail of clues that was left in the disappearance of Sierra is one of the longest, most convoluted, and most intriguing ones that I've covered. And on Sunday morning, two days after she had been reported missing, Everything came to a head. During the course of the investigation into the use of her phone's historical data, the data forensics team came to the conclusion that her phone had sent out a single electronic ping in the middle of the night. They were following the phone's coordinates, which were pointing them in the direction of a field that was only a few blocks away from Sierra's house. The phone gave the appearance of turning on and then off just a few of seconds later. After daylight, a search party went across the fields where the phone signal had been picked up and looked for it very carefully. After only a few minutes of searching, they were successful in locating the device. A few steps away from the path that led to the road was where the Samsung Galaxy belonging to Sierra was found. It was hypothesized that because of the physical damage that it had sustained, it must have been flung from the road in order for it to go such a great distance. The investigation team came to the conclusion that her phone had not been manually activated at any point throughout that night. Instead, they came to the conclusion that the rain had triggered a bogus charge signal on her phone, which had then momentarily switched itself on. Now, this was a pretty fortunate occurrence of chance. The significance of the authorities locating her phone in relation to the resolution of the narrative cannot be overstated. And to think that it was all brought on by a single drop of water and a faulty connection. It seemed likely that her phone was thrown from a moving car because there were no footprints, tiger track markings, or any other type of visual evidence. And considering the nature of this case and the circumstances surrounding it, the cops hurting that was extremely troubling to them. The next day brought yet another finding that was really upsetting. 
A search crew found Sierra's bag thrown just outside of a barn, which was barely two miles away from her house. Because the bag held her coursework as well as her inhaler and money, it is clear that she had the intention of going to school and that she was likely coerced into parting with her own essential belongings. Sadly, things are just going to get worse from here on out. In addition, her luggage had a whole change of clothes most likely identical to the ensemble she wore when she was last seen on the morning she vanished. And this included her underwear, as well as her sweater, her pants, her socks, and her shoes. An examination of her garments using DNA was carried out, and the results were conclusive. They discovered foreign DNA from a man on her pants, which pointed to the fact that she had most likely been the victim of a physical attack. In the days that followed Sierra's disappearance, search activities had already significantly increased in intensity. However, now that her phone and clothing have been located, there has been a renewed outpouring of support from the community. In addition, police received over a thousand fresh tips, and officers worked for a total of more than 7,000 hours on the investigation. More than 800 individuals volunteered their time to serve on various search teams. They searched through fields and abandoned houses with great care and looked into all of the nearby lakes and reservoirs. There were missing people signs placed all throughout the region, and Sierra's name was the topic of conversation everywhere you went. In addition, Sierra's parents offered a monetary reward of $10,000 to anyone who could give convincing proof. But despite the best efforts of both them and the community as a whole, a golf ball and a flipper were the only things that were found in the area. The 18th day has passed, and there is still no trace of Sierra. However, investigators at the sheriff's office are not given up. They have increased the scope of their search and are looking in a number of new regions in the hopes that they will find her alive. Investigators have been given hundreds of tips and pieces of information from members of the community, which they believe is one of the driving forces behind the continued investigation of this case. And in terms of the tangible evidence, Sierra's clothing and mobile phone, in addition to the used condoms and stainless steel handcuffs that were discovered, are all still being investigated to see whether or not they have any link to the location of Sierra. At the time, the general public was unaware that detectives were getting closer and closer to identifying a possible culprit. On March 20, 812 days after Sierra went missing, a study determined that the DNA recovered on her pants matched to a male who lived in the surrounding region. This conclusion was reached on March 20. All of the 57 registered sexual offenders who lived in the Morgan Hills zip code were looked into, and their DNA was matched to the sample that was taken from the suspect. For the record, Sierra's father contacted the authorities about his prior crimes as soon as daughter went missing. Nonetheless, he was very quickly eliminated as a possible suspect after providing information about these crimes to the authorities. Antolin Garcia Torres, a local resident, was one of those men who could not be completely eliminated as a suspect. The guy, who is 21 years old, 
originally came to public attention following the discovery of a positive DNA match between himself and Sierra's pants. A distance of around seven miles separated Antolin's house and Sierra's residence. Antolin inhabited the Maple Leaf Farvey Park with his mother, pregnant wife, and daughter. And Antolin's past is, at the very least, unsettling. He was abused and neglected throughout his youth, making for an extremely challenging upbringing. At one point or another, both the man and his mother had been threatened with death by the violent and drunken behavior of his father. That was in the past, before he was ultimately apprehended and sentenced to prison for the abuse of a younger relative. Sadly, Antolin inherited this terrible trait from his father, which led to Antolin developing this trait himself. In 2009, he was taken into custody on suspicion of having sexual relations with a juvenile. The allegations against him were subsequently dismissed, but as a result of the detention, his DNA was obtained. In 2010, he was also taken into custody for hindering the activities of law enforcement. Due to the investigators' concerns over the relationship between Sierra and Antolin, they decided to place him under round-the-clock watch. Nobody knew for sure if Sierra was still alive or not. At this point in time, though, Antolin possessed the highest probability of being in the know. As a direct consequence of this, law enforcement personnel implemented a variety of safeguards to keep track of his whereabouts and the channels through which he communicated. His phone was bugged, his vehicle was secretly fitted with a GPS tracker, and two undercover police officers moved into a recreational vehicle just across the street from his residence. After discovering that the RV park had cameras at the front door, the investigators reviewed the tape from the day of Antolin's disappearance to determine whether or not Antolin had gone or returned to his house. The investigators also began to search through security footage discovered throughout Antolin's local neighborhood. They were taken aback when they learned that Antolin had driven out from the RV site in his red Volkswagen Jetter at 7 in the morning, at precisely the same time that she had vanished the previous morning. Due to the fact that his house and Sierra's home are just seven miles apart, the amount of time it would take him to go would be an exact fit for the window of opportunity in which Sierra might have been kidnapped. Even though Antolin had left his house at the regular time he would go to work, the shift records from his company Safeway proved that he did not work on March 16. After further discussion with Antolin's management, they learned of some further troubling information. It has come to light that in the span of only three years before, there were three unsuccessful attempts to kidnap someone that took place in the parking lot of this supermarket. And despite the fact that these endeavors were, luckily, not successful, nobody was ever officially recognized or arrested for them. Only one of these attempts to kidnap the victim resulted in any kind of evidence being left behind, and that evidence was a taser that the kidnapper had dropped. One of its batteries was examined, and a fingerprint was discovered there. However, it was just a portion of the fingerprint, and the only way to determine if it was a match was to perform a one-to-one -one comparison. The thought was appealing 
and the result of comparing Antolin's fingerprints to those that were discovered on the stun gun was a very surprising discovery. In point of fact, Antolin was their prime suspect. The investigators now had a suspect who was a strong candidate. The pants that Sierra was wearing had his DNA on them. It was established that he was free at the time that she vanished, and he has had previous links with kidnappings. This was sufficient evidence to justify taking him into custody for interrogation and impounding his vehicle for DNA testing. And despite the fact that Antolin appeared arrogant throughout his interview, the test findings were quite incriminating. During the course of the inquiry, he shown a great deal of dismissiveness. He stated that he did not know who Sierra was, that he was certain that they would find nothing, and that he went fishing on the day that she vanished. He also said that he was convinced that they would find nothing. However, Antolin did not complete his interview before making a confession that was exceedingly strange. You know, Antolin said that he had a really heinous practice in which he would strangle the snake while driving and then toss the unfortunate tissue out of the window. In addition to this, he said that he had discarded a used tissue in the same location where Sierra's bag was discovered on the very same morning that she went missing. Now, we've already had a one-in-a-million opportunity with the reins on Sierra's cell phone, and the cops weren't believing his absurd claim either. What are the chances that we'll get another chance? A formal arrest was made of Antolin Garcia Torres on May 21, 2012, in connection with the disappearance of Sierra Lamar, which occurred outside of his place of employment in the parking lot of a Safeway. This was owing to the fact that there were a number of obvious linkages between Sierra and Antolin's automobile. According to the results of the DNA test, her genetic material was located on the door handle inside the trunk of the vehicle. On addition, a strand of Sierra's hair was discovered on a piece of rope that was located inside Antolin's vehicle, and fibers from his car seats matched those that were discovered on Sierra's clothes. This proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that she was present inside his car at some point in time, if not continuously. But even though he was arrested, there was still a significant issue with the matter as a whole. Sierra's body had not been located despite the fact that the circumstances surrounding her disappearance may have appeared to be self-evident. How could they possibly accuse Antolin with first-degree murder when there was no corpse and no evidence that she had died? The response was a positive one. And as a matter of fact, on May 19, 2014, District Attorney Jeff Rawson of Santa Clara County made the announcement that he would be seeking the death sentence against Antolin. However, by this point, Antolin had already entered a not guilty plea to the charge of killing Sierra. However, there was an overwhelming amount of evidence demonstrating right up to the point of completion that he had, so there was very little space for debate. The trial of Antolin finally got underway in January 2017, having been delayed many times previously. The trial lasted a very long time and was quite difficult for everyone who was involved. The testimony lasted for almost 13 weeks, and both the prosecution and the defense presented lengthy arguments throughout that time. 
One of the aspects of the trial that I found most fascinating was when Antolin's defense team attempted to claim that Antolin's early exposure to pesticides from surrounding fields may have mentally affected his cognitive capacities, and that he could therefore not be held responsible for what happened. In addition to this, they argued that he should not be eligible for the death penalty due to the fact that he had nothing to do with being exposed to that harmful substance. And under such conditions, they are going to say it is something that he couldn't help. And that is a deficiency that he faces as a young man that other people don't face. This is a disadvantage that he has that other people don't face. Therefore, the purpose of this evidence from the expert is to attack his mental condition and to suggest that he did not have a normal upbringing. In addition, he was subjected to exposure to harmful substances, which may have damaged his ability to make sound judgments as well as his brain function on a very fundamental level. A retrial was requested by Antolin's legal team as a last-ditch effort to clear his name. After calling into doubt the reliability and sincerity of the fleet investigator and stating that he had messed up evidence in prior cases, the investigation was halted. Despite that, this motion was not granted. Sierra Lamar's death was ruled a first-degree murder by a jury on Tuesday, May 9, 2017, and Antolin Garcia Torres was found guilty of the crime. Even though Sierra's corpse has never been recovered, and there is no definitive proof that she has passed away, Antolin was in such a precarious position due to the mountain of evidence against him that he was unable to absolve himself of his acts. In the courtroom, Sierra's mother looked him square in the eye and said, I find it incomprehensible that you would commit such a heinous and violent crime. She was speaking to him directly. You brought unimaginable suffering not just to our family but also to yours. You have prevented Sierra from fulfilling the destiny that God has in store for her. And now you have the opportunity to make amends by confessing your sin and informing us of her whereabouts. I never stopped thinking about her and what has been stolen away from me as a mother because of this. It's simply so difficult to accept that this actually took place. I still wake up each day certain that it was all a dream, but the truth is that it happened. When many of Sierra Era's relatives read letters to him and the courtroom, Antolin maintained his composure and did not show any emotion. And despite the passage of time, he continues to insist that he was not responsible for Sierra's death. This indicates that he has not divulged any information on the possible location of Sierra's body, and it is a painful reality that, other from the evidence that has been presented, no one knows what exactly occurred on the day that she vanished. Despite the fact that he was spared the death penalty, Antolin was legally sentenced to life in jail without the chance of release. This is quite an accomplishment, when you think about it, considering that no corpse has ever been located. Antolin has stayed almost completely quiet ever since he was sentenced to prison. And even though we have received hundreds of letters from different news stations and random people, we have only responded to one letter so far. Antolin wrote in this letter, which was sent to a news reporter from Cronus 4, I hold fart to my innocence and I am not going to talk about the case. I don't put much stock in what the media says. 
there is a significant amount of biased reporting, which results in the creation of an image that is not necessarily accurate. Unfortunately, we no longer live in a time where individuals are afforded the opportunity to have their opinions taken into consideration in the decision-making process. To tell you the truth, I have no idea why Antolin continues to assert his innocence. This is as obvious as the nose on your face given that his DNA was found on Sierra's stuff. Sierra's DNA was found in his car. He has a criminal past. And there is a perfect timing. At the very least, it is glaringly obvious that he was engaged in Sierra's disappearance. And if you were to believe what I like to portray in these stories, you would know that her friends and family say there is no way that she could still be missing if she were still alive. Nevertheless, there were a few intriguing and ominous footnotes to this investigation. On June 19, 2012, three months after she had vanished, false images were released online, revealing Sierra's Facebook account and claiming that she was being kept hostage and needed assistance. These updates were posted multiple times to suggest that she needed assistance. It was eventually determined that this was a hoax. But honestly, what type of sick individual would do something like this? However, there was a valid post, including a little of gloomy irony. She retweeted a post that asked, going to school tomorrow, the night before Sierra vanished, and then she was never seen again. I'd rather just take my own life. Some of the event's organizers claim that their search for Sierra was the most extensive and ongoing search ever conducted in the United States for a missing person. History Over the course of three years, volunteers carried out more than 1,100 searches within a radius of 15 miles, contributing a combined total of 50,000 man-hours to the overall search effort. They searched the nearby forests, ravines, and thickets during the sweltering days of summer, the dreary evenings of autumn, and the freezing nights of winter for any sign of the young woman who had gone missing. Volunteers continue to search, clinging to the dwindling hope that they may find Sierra Lamar. Even though the majority of them have come to terms with the fact that Sierra is very certainly no longer alive, they still want to give her house and her family the sense of finality that they are due. To this day, no one is sure where Sierra's corpse is, but the Lamar family hasn't given up faith that they'll eventually get answers that would bring them peace. The investigation for today has come to a close, everyone, and I want to say thank you very much for your attention to the case today. If you found this investigation to be fascinating or if you acquired new information, then don't forget to give a thumbs up and sign up for the channel. As always, I would appreciate it if you could provide your feedback on this matter in the comment box that can be found further down, and I'll see you guys again very soon for another case. However, until we are together again, I want to remind everyone to watch out for one another and to keep themselves safe. Thank you and farewell.